All right, well, you have your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, whatever you read your Bible on. We are in Ruth, book of Ruth, chapter 2, starting verse 14. As you're turning there, I want to quote Jesus um, out of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. If you've been brought up in the church, this is a verse that's probably pretty familiar to you. I feel like it's one of the ones we go back to, and yet I don't know that it's one we actually comprehend completely. I feel like not, I feel like many do. I just don't know that I have. And I feel like God, honestly, through this whole week of prepping and praying over this passage and the to- on the topic that kind of came out of it, God had to confront me that I wasn't finding the reality of what we're going to talk about in my own life completely. When Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I guess my question to us first is, do we actually believe this? It's like, well, I come to Christ and yet I'm still busy. And I think that maybe we've kind of jumped to this attitude that if you come to Christ, then it's just a constant vacation. And then you, then you got to come back to real life at some point and then it gets hard, but you're following Jesus, which is another addition to all the stuff that you already have to do. But when he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And if I were to ask us to raise our hands, and I'm not, but if I were to ask you to raise your hands, how many of you would say that you labor and are heavy laden? Like when you look at your day, I, in fact, I would, I would venture to say that the majority of us would say, I'm busy. I'm busy, and not only am I busy, but maybe you've been more busy now than ever. And so we look at that word rest. And so in the original language, in the Greek, this is what the word rest means. There's three definitions that popped out to me. He said this, first one is to cause or permit one to cease from any movement or labor. Now catch it, in order to recover and collect his strength. So if you look in that word, in that first definition, there is this need. I know a lot of times this is what happens personally speaking. God, I pray I'm, I'm coming to you because I, I'm weary and heavy laden and I want you to give me rest, but I don't want to slow down or stop. And so I pray that you give me rest so that I can feel restful while I'm still doing all the things that I'm supposed to be doing or think that I'm supposed to be doing. Brian, you don't understand. We have real jobs. And I do too. But here's a part where you have, to, you have to say, maybe I need to take a break, slow down, and not keep going at the pace I'm going, expecting that I'm just going to experience or feel restful. I've said this before. I don't sleep very well. And there's been some things that have helped and not helped and Last night wasn't one of the good ones. About 2.45, I just kind of woke up and boom, my mind was just awake. And so whatever I do, it just kind of stays awake. And I wouldn't say that, oh, I still wake up and I feel restful. God only wanted me to sleep for two hours or three hours or four hours. It's like, I think my body actually needs more than that. So what will I do after lunch? I will go home and in the name of Jesus, I will get in my chair and I will conk out. At least for 20 minutes. It feels longer, but at least for 20 minutes, my body will wake up at some point. But to take a break, to take rest, even on Friday, I try to keep that a day of rest. You say, well, I don't have Friday. No, but what day could work for you where you could actually take a break? Do you schedule it? Do I schedule it in my schedule? I need to take a break. It's not just take a break physically, but it's in order to get away from all the movement and labor that I'm going through so that I can recover and collect my strength. The next definition is this, to give rest or to refresh, to give oneself rest, to take rest. The next is this, to keep quiet. Oh man, to go before God or just live a day, take a day and say nothing. I'm not saying this is a legalistic thing, but what if all of a sudden we just slowed down long enough that I didn't feel like I had to give God any opinions on how it is that he should do something. But I might just pull back and go, hey God, I got nothing to say. 
The next part of that is to be of, of calm and patient expectations. Why, God, I can get quiet before you because I have this calm and hopeful expectation that you're going to do what you do. Guys, I'm convinced of this. Even if you took a few hours and did nothing, the earth will still rotate. The sun will rise in the morning and set in the evening. The world will continue. When I'm dead, the, the world will continue to go. And maybe a few might realize, hey, Brian's not here anymore. But the majority of the planet's going to have no clue. The universe is not going to break out in mourning over my death. That maybe, just maybe, everything is not reliant upon me. But maybe God is still sovereign. And God is still God. I wrote this question in my notes. Does the nonstop nature of our schedules produce in us, as well as show a difference to those around us, the life that Jesus wants for us and the life that others want to know about. When people see me and how I live my life and what is it I'm experiencing, I'm telling you, it's not all about what do I experience, that's proof that God exists. No, no, no. But if I, if I listen to Jesus, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If he says that he is the, tr the way, the truth, and the life, then maybe he knows how life is supposed to be. Does my life then convey to anyone else around me that doesn't know Christ going, there's something different about you. The pace in which you live is actually attractive. So we pick up in Ruth chapter two, verse 14, and so far what we've seen as we've come to this place in our, in our study of this book, we see that Ruth has now gone out to work in the fields hoping to find some leftovers. <clears throat> After people have gone through the fields, she's going she's gonna to glean after them. So there's going to be, uh, according to the book of Leviticus, according to the book of Deuteronomy, God has stated this. When you go through your fields and you're reaping the harvest, don't go over, don't go over it a second time. Don't go straight to the edges, but leave, leave, uh, leave some of the stuff for those who are poor to come in behind you and to gather behind you that they can have food. Isn't it beautiful to watch God saying, hey, I'm going to set up a welfare system for those who are going through it. But I expect you to go and work and get the food, but leave it. Those of you who have plenty, leave extras. Don't go back a second time just for your profit. And so she's just hoping she can get at least enough for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi, to live on. While she's there, Boaz, who owns the field, takes notice of her and shows great grace toward her and favor toward her. And then you notice Ruth's response in verse 13 of chapter two. Here's Ruth's response to Boaz's, uh, his kindness and his grace. She says this, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Listen to that. I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. Now, here's this last part. Though I am not one of your servants. When she says that, what's she saying? Well, remember, she's from Moab. I mean, she's not even technically from the people of Israel. She's not from the country. She came over because they were coming back because they heard that the famine was over and that they could get food and they both lost their husbands and so they're hoping that they can find a better life. Does that sound anything like today? Guys, I know that we have opinions on border stuff and security and I believe that a country has the, has the right to protect its borders but as followers of Jesus, here's our response to the people that are here, whether legally or illegally, we love them in the name of Jesus. We show grace and favor toward them because they're created in the image of God. 
And before we jump automatically to legal or not, we look and say they are people whom God has made. And we leave the rest. He said, but they haven't figured anything out. I know, but really, they're not gonna listen to me either. But what I can do is I can love those who are not, quote unquote, from here. And I can love them as if they belong, but ultimately to bring them to Jesus. So far, what I see here, this seems right. I know for some, the automatic response, guys, before you jump into that, all I ever ask you is this, pray, think, make decisions, vote, based upon biblical things, not just political preference. I love the fact that here's a woman that, quote unquote, is not from there, but accepted and loved as if she were. In verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed, instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Guys, as we looked at last week, uh, we looked at Boaz as kind of a Christ figure. And so when you're watching this story unfold, you see Boaz kind of come in and you'll see him as, as he's given the title, this kinsman redeemer. And so we look at Boaz as this Christ figure and then notice his invitation. Boaz gives this invitation to, to Ruth. Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Come here. Like guys. This was, this was a normal food, this was kind of a normal thing to refresh the workers, but notice that it says, come here. That means Boaz is sitting with his workers. He's not out over here. I mean, for those, for those that have, you have your own business and you have employees, there is something that is telling to employees when all of a sudden the owner is right in there in the midst of it with all of them. Because isn't that exactly what incarnational ministry looks like when it comes to Jesus? See, when Jesus came for us, he didn't send somebody on his behalf. He's saying, well, I don't want to go. I don't want to be with those people. You go. Just tell them what I said. He's like, well, in the prophets, the Old Testament, yeah, but all the prophets were talking about the fact that God was going to show up in the flesh. Guys, there's leadership and then there's servant leadership. And servant leadership is actually true leadership for that is the leadership that God, that Jesus himself showed us, portrayed to us, was exemplified for us. He says, come here. And I want you to have exactly what all of my servants have because you've been accepted in. So just kind of picture bread with oil and vinegar. And I know that we're used to bread and butter, but there, there used to be, oh, what's the, I don't remember the name of the Italian place, but it used to be bread with oil and vinegar in it, like the good stuff. And they always say that that's worse for you because you never know how much oil is going on the bread. Exactly. That's the point. Just dip it in there, but you taste it. It's like, just come here. This wasn't necessary. It's not like she's gonna die if she doesn't have this. But isn't it just like the kinsman redeemer? Isn't it just like our redeemer to spoil us just a little bit? To invite us in, to give us something that we didn't think we were gonna have, and yet he provides it. But the invitation was come here. Matthew 11, 28 again. Come to me. Here's Jesus saying, come to me, all who are all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is a promise that Jesus is making, and he can never break his promises. And so we go back to our, our question when it comes to laboring and being heavy laden. It's like just completely overwhelmed, and is it a constant lifestyle of being completely overwhelmed? Or is it just seasons? Because there will be seasons where things get overwhelming, True. 
But it should, be, should that be the constancy that we're experiencing if we're walking to the pace of Christ? So is it because God has given us more than we can handle? Or is it because maybe we've taken on more than we should have in the beginning? For those of you with the spiritual gift of service, you are nonstop, and I don't understand you. You just keep going and going and going, and it is so convicting. I try to never compare my ability to serve people with those who have the spiritual gift of service because I will never, ever measure up. So I'm married to one who has a spiritual gift of service, and I cannot ever outdo her. As much as I, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to do these things, boom. And she's kind of already done most of that stuff, and I'm like, I'll do this part. And she just keeps going. And then, I don't know, I just sit there and go, I can't keep up. I'm, and then I, this is where I jump into, I'm horrible. Guys, comparing yourself with a spiritual gift of whatever, hoping you could do that and have that, guys, it's always going to make you feel horrible. I remember having a conversation with a young dad at one point. Um, he'd always compare himself, his parenting with how effective his wife's parenting was as a mom. So moms and dads, I don't know if you've noticed this, we are different. We're different. So like, I think I've explained this before, but even growing up or even lately, when the boys are sick, like I, if I hear one of them throwing up or something, I'll go in, but I stand at the door. Like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I would not want somebody coming up and just rubbing my back. I don't want another guy to say, hey, I'm just going to rub your back until you feel better. I'm like, get off my back. And so I don't do that. I, just, I usually stand in the door going, you okay? You okay? You okay? Kelly just jumps right in. Boom. She's right there rubbing his back and making sure they're okay. And I'm just sitting there going, well, you've got this handle. And I just go right back to bed. And then I get back in bed and go, I'm a horrible parent. I, I, I stood there for I was just like 64 seconds. That was a long time compared to the 31 before. And she's still in there and she's going for it. And I remember sitting there going, but I'm not a mom. I'm a dad. And I don't want my wife comparing her parenting on me. And I shouldn't be comparing my parenting on her. We're different. That's why it's called complementary. We complement one another in parenting. But it's not to degrade who I am and what I'm not doing. I can be challenged to improve, but it's not saying, hey, I'm horrible because I'm not exactly like that. I just keep asking the question, are we weary and heavy laden because we're taking on more than God ever said to say yes to? And for those with a spiritual gift of service, I want to invite you at points to say this. It's a freeing word. It's an amazing concept. Here it is. Ready? No. I actually asked the Lord, do you want me to do this? If you're feeling overwhelmed and you're just sensing this is another thing and it is heavy and overwhelming. And I'm gonna, again, there's seasons of it, but if it's constant, one of the best things that you can do in worship to God is to sit and go, I can't. I don't have anything left. And to not sit there and think, well, Jesus is saying, I died for you. How dare you say no to another thing? An hour and a half of sleep is perfect. You don't need to eat. There might be a time where God's like, I need you to take a rest so you can slow down and do nothing. I need you to come quietly to me and let me speak into you so I can restore your soul. Verse 14 again, so she sat beside the reapers and he passed her a roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. Guys, that word satisfied is a feeling, of, or, a feeling or attitude of contentment implying confidence in one's present circumstance and also in future events. That's what the word means. 
But listen to this one also. Be in a state of physical contentment due to having physical needs met in abundance. In abundance or in excess. This includes food, drink, provisions, and rest. So as I read that definition I've been, and I was reading through this passage, Philippians 4, chapter 10 through 13 came to my mind, and it's the topic of contentment. I was sharing with Ryan uh, sitting this morning when we were having our D group. I was saying, hey, I've come across this passage so often throughout my years, this idea of contentment. And I keep praying this, God, would you teach me how to be content? Like to truly be content, like what is the secret to being content? Listen to what he says, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, what he's saying is this. Hey, I'm in prison right now, and you've been wanting to help me, phys- like, help my physical needs. You haven't had an opportunity, but I know you're going to. I know you're going to come through, and I know that it's coming. Verse 11. But he says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Stop there for just a second. He's learned the secret to contentment. And so I'm sitting there going, so what is it, God? And then I'm afraid. God, if I ask for you to teach me contentment, does that mean you're going to take a bunch of stuff away to teach me how to be content? I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to ask that. I mean, I want to because I'm supposed to, but I don't want to experience it. And so I thought, what is the secret to this, God? Like, what is the secret? I feel like, I feel like there's times where I've gone through plenty and I've, there's seasons I've gone through where I have want, and, but I don't know that I'm actually sitting there considering it all pure joy whenever I face trials of many kinds. So how is it that we come to a place of contentment no matter what? And I always thought there was this secret knowledge which is so important and so, it's such a good reminder because we went through the book of Colossians and the first half of it is talking about these people that had these secret knowledge, quote unquote. And then they took advantage of people who didn't have the secret knowledge so that they, those people could, could charge them saying, hey, if you come this way, do what I say and give me a little bit, I will tell you the secret to godliness. So I'm like, God, what is the secret to contentment? Guys, I think the next, the next verse explains it. And yet as this Christian who knows 4.13, Philippians 4.13, how many have ever heard this verse? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Who's heard it before? Right? Here's the problem with knowing it too well. We use it outside the context in which it was written. So Steph Curry, when he's signing his autograph, he's writing Philippians 4.13. And I think it's a great verse. Like if somebody's going through a tough time, I can sit there and go, man, you can do everything through Christ. You can do everything through Christ. But when you get to this topic of contentment, we sit and go, well, no, it's something different, even though the answer is right there in verse 13. What is the secret that he learned that he could be content in any and every situation? He answers it in 13. What is it? I can do all things. I can face all things. I can go through all things through Christ The secret to contentment. Friends, it is not three steps, 12 steps, 42 steps. It is not that. The secret to contentment is Jesus. And like, Brian, that is too simplified. No, I need some things to do. Is that how you treat every relationship that you have? 
Like we can't just enjoy one another and I can't just be in relationship with you and you with me. We gotta do stuff. Friends, you ever wonder why I'm always bringing up, are you in the word? You spending time with God in the word? You spending time with him in prayer? Do you think it's just because I want us to be a church? I can sit there and go, do you know how many people ask to be on the Bible reading plan? Look at this statistic. Guys, here's why, here's why I keep bringing it up. I'm convinced there is no satisfaction outside of Jesus. There is no fulfilled satisfaction outside of Christ. And here's the danger we get to. We're followers of Jesus. And then we think, well, because I follow Jesus and I have the Holy Spirit, I'll never struggle with this part again. Guys, it is just as deceptive. The enemy is still just as deceptive. And he deceives us to actually believe. Friends, I, I used to be able to jump in to say, hey, my contentment, my satisfaction is doing the work of the Lord. And I could be busy in ministry, void of relationship with Jesus, and there is no satisfaction in that either. How do we get to the place where we are absolutely, completely satisfied it's when we come to the place where we actually know it's just about Jesus. And it is this intentional mind game. Like I have to intentionally think through. I'm not gonna base my value. I'm not gonna base who I am on what it is that I've accomplished. I'm not gonna allow that thought that I'm not quite sure that I really like that and I don't think that that's honoring to Jesus to then degrade who I am because in Christ I'm forgiven. I don't take advantage of that. I'm blown away by the grace of God. But this being in Christ is so important for us to get. So we actually move into the place of contentment rather than just simply waiting for the four steps that will make sure that I'm financially secure, every relationship is perfect, and I never face any trial in my life because there is no truth in those things. There's principles that I can apply. But it's not principles that I can apply so that I experience the life that I've always wanted to experience, pain-free, carefree. The principles that I apply are the commandments that God gives to us. So when I face those trials and those pains, or when those thoughts of comparison come up, when I feel like I'm beyond the grace of God because there's too much junk and too much temptation, or I've fallen too far from grace, I then come back to what the scriptures teach me. And because I'm in Christ, the Bible says that I am more than a conqueror. The Bible says that those of you who know Christ, you are more than conquerors. And when I say this, I go, okay, so I gotta go conquer. Yes, go conquer, but catch this. Live in the reality of this, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else at all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. When I live in the reality that I'm loved and adored by God, my satisfaction is completely set on Him. My, satis my being satisfied is not on Kelly. Why, she's a fallible human. And I don't want her need for satisfaction to be based upon me because I'm a fallible human. But if my being satisfied is completely taken care of by Jesus and I don't place that responsibility on her, maybe, just maybe, during those times where I feel like I'm getting frustrated over things that don't need to be frustrated about, I pull back and go, it's not her responsibility to satisfy me. 
She's my partner to walk through life because Jesus is the only one who brings satisfaction to us both. So we're gonna go into this journey together. Guys, you see the difference? You don't work to find satisfaction. We don't get in relationships with satis- for satisfaction. Some say, hey, Brian, I'm still single. Okay, so you think that you're gonna find the mate and that's gonna bring you satisfaction? There's joy in that, absolutely. Every day, of course not. But even if you were to get married, to place that responsibility on your spouse is unfair. And it's not responsible, it's not what Jesus invites us to. He is in, his invitation was come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ruth ate what the kinsman redeemer provided and was satisfied and had leftovers. Guys, are you satisfied? Like, are you at a place where it's like, gosh, I'm really starting to love Jesus a lot. And I'm seeing this difference. I don't have everything I've ever wanted, but oh, I've got everything I actually truly need. And actually, what I truly want is him. I read this quote, Charles Spurgeon, old school preacher back in the day, and this is the thing that hit me. This is the thing that awakened me because I said, I don't know if I've hit that place where I'm completely satisfied in Jesus. Like, I know that he's grown me and I'm super passionate, I love him, but do I find my ultimate satisfaction in him? Because if I was to ask you a question, how much money is enough? Isn't our answer just one more dollar? Isn't that kind of what it is? But what if you never get a raise? What if you never get a raise? What if you never move up in your, in your job? Students, what if you don't make that team? Are you now less of a person? Are you less satisfied? Isn't it amazing we can follow Jesus and then get, we can veer off. We try to find satisfaction in all these different things and accomplishments. And this is not a message saying you can't go after those things, but it is a message saying do not wrap your identity on whether or not you get them. Because at some point we said, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. And whatever you want for me is what I want for me. But whatever you don't, I don't. Friends, that only comes when we can say that we're satisfied in Jesus. Here's what Spurgeon said. Speaking of Ruth, he said, she did eat and was satisfied. Your head shall be satisfied with the precious truth which Christ reveals. Your heart shall be content with Jesus as the altogether lovely object of affection. Your hope shall be satisfied for whom have you in heaven but Christ. Your desire shall be, sa- shall be sa- satiated For what can even the hunger of your desire wish for more than to know Christ and to be found in him? You shall find Jesus fill your conscience till it is at perfect peace. He shall fill your judgment till you know the certainty of his teachings. He shall fill your memory with recollections of what he did and fill your imagination with the prospects of what he has yet to do. You shall be satisfied. In other words, when Jesus is all-encompassing, when he is everything, then we'll be satisfied. Until then, it's idolatry. And idols never give life, for they have no life to give. 
So I ask the question, are you running on empty? Because here's what I'm noticing. Running on, running on empty leaves me empty, and I cannot give anyone anything if I'm running on empty. But what we fill ourselves with matters. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2 and 3. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ears and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Guys, those are pretty, pretty telling verses. It's like, what are you spending your money on again? Parents, remember when you were, I'm gonna do this. Parents, remember when you were little, because I remember having, I've had these conversations with my kids before, but when you were little, remember you took some money and you went and bought something, and when you got home, your parents looked at it going, why did you spend money on that? Like, what is that? I just really needed this. Like, I don't, I don't understand, like, when you go to, like, the amusement parks and they take your savings, and when you go in, and all of a sudden, I need this little wooden rifle with a cork thing at the end that I can squeeze, and it goes, pop, and that sucker is, like, $16. It's like, but I need it. I need it. I'm like, you don't. You don't, I promise. Chick, you could get two Chick-fil-A meals for that, buddy. Maybe like one and a half, but you could. It's like, or it's like the, the things that light up. You go to the fair and all those people, all those workers, they're walking around with all that stuff and all the kids are like, yes, that's heaven. And then they, and they're doing it in front of you. Like, oh my gosh, this is what I need. I need this, I need this, I need this. And, and yet I think that even as we grow up, maybe God's looking at us sometimes going, I know that it's flashy and I know that it makes noise, and I know that it's got a better camera than the last one. But why? Guys, as I flew home from Louisiana doing that wedding last week, I remember walking through the airport, and I, I'm, a, I don't, anybody, I'm, a, I'm a people watcher. Anybody like to watch people? Like if you give me a soft pretzel and a water and I'll just sit there and watch people. I could, I'll sit in the airport for four hours. I don't even care. I'll just sit there and just stare at people. And it looks like I'm judging, but I'm not, maybe a little bit, but not all the time. But I'm just kind of watching as people go, I love it. And there's this one point I'm, I'm just kind of walking through and every single person, every person has a screen. I mean, there's all this stuff going. I got, I didn't, in Salt Lake, I've never been to that airport. I looked, they have massive windows. There are snow-capped mountains 360 degrees around me. So I'm just walking along going, oh my gosh, this, this is what non-drought looks like. It was gorgeous. So I go up to one, I walk up to one window. There's a dude sitting here just trying to have his own experience with his phone. Whatever. I stood right next to him because there was nowhere else I could stand. I stood right next to him, which probably is not the most flattering thing for him to see as my derrieres. But I'm looking through the window and I'm going, this is amazing. And I just kept walking around the airport, all the way around me, mountains covered in snow. And I went, friends, we're missing it. Like, look at all this stuff. Look at these people. And this is the introvert. We're so easily entertained. And maybe we're so easily entertained. And because we are, Maybe that's part of the reason behind why we are so weary and heavy laden. Because we're so entertained, so easily entertained. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Start in verse 17 of verse 2. So she gleaned in the field until, until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That's about 10 days' worth of food for her and for her and Naomi. Verse 18, as she took it up and went into the city, her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. I wrote this in my notes. We can share actual good things with others when we have been truly satisfied. We can actually, send, we can actually share really good stuff with people. When we've been truly satisfied... Isn't it Ruth beautiful? She has leftovers and instead of just leaving it there, she takes it home. Why? Because Naomi's there. She's got to care for her. What a beautiful woman. What a beautiful thing for her to keep in mind. I'm going to take this home to care for her. But because she was satisfied first, she could then go and take what it is. I could bless you because I have experienced satisfaction. Verse 19. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where'd you glean today? And where have you worked? The question makes sense. You brought home this massive amount of food. Like, where were you? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Notice the difference in Naomi. Since the first time that we met her, in Ruth chapter 1, look at verse 20 and 21. So she, uh, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. And she's coming back, no husband, she's lost two of her sons. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. The name Mara means bitter. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And then in a short amount of time, you get to verse, or chapter 2, verse 20, and listen to what it is that Naomi's now saying. May he be blessed, may, Bo, may, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, the Lord's kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you think there's change happening within Naomi? Absolutely. Friends, if right now you're saying, don't call me this, I'm bitter. I'm just going to keep encouraging you. As I say often, even when I text, if I'm checking in how you're doing and some of you guys sharing us some tough things you're going through, this is usually what I'm saying. Hey, I'm praying for you. And then there's three words. Hang in there. Almost all the time, it's like, what else am I going to do? It's like, I, I can't fix it. Hey, I have a family member who just got diagnosed with cancer. I got it. I'll take it. Where are they? I, I, do, I do surgeries on the side. Like, it's not going to happen. But what I can say is I'm going to pray. I'm going to go before the most powerful being in the universe. And I'm going to pray on your behalf. And until he reveals what it is he's going to do, hang in there. And the way I can bring, or the thing that I can bring you back to is here's Naomi who was bitter and now isn't. Or maybe she's at least maybe still a little bit moving in the direction she's seeing the goodness of God. Made me think of this verse in Romans chapter 15, and here's why. I started thinking, I say, what's the difference between Ruth in chapter one and chapter two? I think this one word, I think this one word describes the difference, and it's the word hope. Where in chapter one, she's lost everything and coming back and not sure what's going to happen. I'm hoping I'm gonna make it, and I've got this daughter-in-law with me. We have no clue what we're gonna do. We have no husbands now who will protect us and keep us safe from the culture that is around us. We might be left to just beg. I don't know what God's up to, to now, God bless the one who's provided, but also bless God because he's providing for the living and for the dead. I think it's one word. I think it's the word hope. 
I think hope is all that changed in Naomi. And for us as followers of Jesus, where does that hope come from? The hope comes from when we're satisfied in Jesus. Romans chapter 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. There's the phrase, in believing. Believing in who? Jesus. Do you see it? Like, I feel like it's just gonna start popping out as we keep spending time with God in his word. We go, okay, but Jesus, you are, you are the only one who brings true satisfaction. And when we look to find being satisfied only in Jesus, we might actually see him so much in this Bible. He's sitting there and go, oh, wow, he is the main character. He is the main point. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Not just have some, but that you might abound in it. Verse 20 continued. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Guys, what is this source of hope? that Naomi seems to have found and seems to have now. Guys, I think her hope wasn't connected to a situation she was going through, but to a person who showed up. A kinsman redeemer showed up. And the same thing can be said for us. No matter the circumstance, a kinsman, a kinsman redeemer, a redeemer showed up to redeem us. That's where hope comes from. Guys, I can't tell you that oh, all my hope is in Jesus. And therefore, I will never experience tears or fear or pain. No, you will experience fears and pain and tears. But I can promise you this. You will have hope and joy and peace abounding as you continue to believe in him. Why? Because that's the promise. And Ruth the Moabite said, verse 21, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her, said to her daughter-in-law, it is good. It is good. What is good? It's, hey, stay close to his servants, especially the guys. So they're going, oh, I don't need a man. Ruth's not saying, going, I don't need no man. Guys, you know why he wanted, you know why Naomi said they're going, I want you to stick close to the guys. Why? Because if other guys try to come up and take advantage of you, that They'll thump on them. Like they're gonna protect you. Guys, we live in a culture where it seems like one gender is trying to be elevated over the other by whoever's talking. You can elevate both. One greater than the other. That is not the biblical standard. The biblical standard is that God created male and female in his image. In his image, he created them. And each gender plays a part and what it is that God has set up and God has ordained and prescribed our gender to us. And so I should be celebrating my sisters and I should be celebrating my brothers. And ladies, you should be celebrating your sisters in Christ and your brothers in Christ. Why? Because God's created us both. And to elevate one over the other is sin. It is not what God has prescribed in his word. Verse 23, so she kept close to the young men or to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and, what, and, and wheat harvest. That'd be about four to six weeks total. And she lived with her mother-in-law. That word lived means to dwell or to remain. Or here's one of my words, remember? To abide. I'm like, dang, it's all over the place. Abide just keeps coming up. 
Guys, this idea of living and abiding is Jesus. We go back to last week when Dr. Cruz was here. I hope you enjoyed him, especially as he's quoting from Guns and Ammo and ESPN magazine. Like, <laughs> I love when he did that, but I was like, really? Oh, that's not, that's biblical. Okay, so John chapter 15, verses four and five, he says this. Jesus says this. This is where Dr. Cruz started last week. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That last phrase should not depress you. It should invite you. I can't do anything unless I'm connected to Jesus. I can't live this life unless I'm connected to Jesus. Has anyone here ever said this, the same way that I've said this? I do not understand how people without Christ make it through some of the difficulties that we have to go through. Anybody else besides myself sitting there going, how do they do it? Because we're just hoping and we're guessing, but I'm sitting there going, but when I look in the scriptures and God who's outside of time and sovereign over everything gives me, fills me with peace and joy as my hope is only in Christ, I can look at him and go, you're eternal, you're perfect, you're all powerful, you're all knowing, you've lived out my tomorrows, I don't have to freak out because you've got it. And I'm satisfied in the one who's perfect. Friends, that word abide means to stay or remain, but watch, it means to wait for, remain in a place or state, and expect something in the future. It's not, hey, I'm abiding now. I'm having a quiet time. Now I can go live my life. And then tomorrow I'll do it again, and then I'll come back out. That's some sweet moves there. I go back in, I come back out. Guys, it's to never leave. It's to stay, it's to remain, it's to constantly be with every moment of every day, living in the presence and acceptance and the love and the adoration and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus. Never leave, stay there and you will be satisfied. When we move out of that, we freak out we get worried about everything and we never get out from underneath it. Fear takes over, anxiety overwhelms. But Brian, I feel like I have to constantly go to Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. What could be better than that? As the worship team comes back up. Man, I wrote too much in my notes. Guys, what does it look like to abide in Jesus? This is the picture that comes into my mind. And probably because one day I'd love to have a place like this, but if not, this side of heaven may be on the other side. I love wraparound porches with land. Not opening my gate and seeing my neighbor's house right there, but like land, like 25,000 acres. I don't know what I would do with it, but whatever, it's mine. And I have a wraparound porch with a little house. But what if... Abiding in Jesus, it looks like sitting with someone on a wraparound porch in rocking chairs with no schedule to keep, no responsibilities to fulfill, whittling some wood, and no distractions to take us away. What is that's the picture? I'm not saying that's literally what you should, hey, today, starting today, never go back to work, just sit on your porch and whittle wood. Say, so what if that's the picture that it is? It's supposed to be just sitting with Jesus, no schedule to keep, no errands to run, 
no appointments to get to, just him and you. What if that's the constancy that we live for? See, we don't have a quiet time. So we don't spend time praying. We don't go to a worship service. We don't accept Jesus into our lives to merely fix things and make our lives better, all the while keeping him at a religious distance like we do the technician who comes to our homes to fix that which is broken. God, I need you. Then he comes like, okay, you can take off. We don't do these things just because. Rather, we spend time with Jesus in prayer and time with him in his word. We come to worship Jesus. We don't attend a worship gathering. We come to worship him. We leave here with Jesus instead of leaving him in the room on our own, on our own or on the screens that we're watching. And then we continue in that relationship with him all day, every day, every week, every month, every year. As we learn to be satisfied by him, so what would happen if we were satisfied in Jesus? If you don't mind, give me a couple, a couple seconds, which every pastor says, but I really do mean this. What would happen if we were really satisfied in Jesus? Maybe. We'd stop giving into sinful cravings as much because we would be truly satisfied in Jesus. Maybe we'd stop living for the applause of the masses because we would know who we are in Jesus Maybe we'd stop living to eat and rather eat to live. Maybe we'd stop finding our value in what we do and rather in what Jesus did for us. Maybe we'd stop expecting others to fill the true need of our lives that only Jesus can satisfy. Maybe we'd stop being busy for identity's sake because we know we would know that our value is based and found in Jesus. Maybe we'd stop constantly looking to entertainment to fill a need because we know how to live learning from Jesus. Maybe we'd stop comparing ourselves to others only to never measure up to others. Maybe we'd find time to simply be. Maybe we would, we would learn to live life rather than being driven by it and held captive by it. We would learn to walk at Jesus' pace. We'd approach trials with the hope that God, through it all, would be glorified. We'd find true and deep satisfaction. We'd learn to enjoy God and each other. We'd learn to quickly forgive and thoroughly. We would serve from a place of love rather than a place of begrudging duty. We'd expect, we would extend grace because we would know and be moved by the grace that God has given us. Maybe we would experience life and not just live because we're actually satisfied and it only comes with Jesus. Practically, what can I do? Love him. No, practically, love him. Love him. Spend time with him. Every moment of every day, talk to him. Start there and then serve him because you love him and do it with him, not for him. Invite him to be in every aspect of the day and listen to his invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As we sing one last song together, thanks for that. I took a little bit more time than I usually do. Thank you. Uh, always being gracious. I really appreciate that. I really want to respect your time, but oh, I want us to find satisfaction. And friends, I was so convicted but freed this week. When I sat there, I was like, God, I'm placing way too much responsibility on circumstances and people. And what I should be doing is finding my satisfaction only in Jesus. He is the only one that satisfies. Can we stand and we pray together? Jesus, we submit ourselves to you once again. We thank you that you are a good God. I thank you for your gentle instruction this week for me, and I pray that you've done the same thing for each of us. Help us, God, no matter the circumstances we face, no matter what we're going through, no matter who we've lost or who we might lose. 
God, may we be satisfied in Jesus. Learn the secret to being content in any and every situation, God. Thank you for teaching me this week. I needed to hear that. I needed to be reminded of that. I needed to be freed from some junk that was in my soul. God, thank you for your goodness. And as we sing to you, to you be all the praise, all the glory and all the honor for you alone are worthy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees, says, amen. Love you more than you know.